And I'm Scott. And we are Fired Up, Ready to Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we have a very special guest. Brett Kavanaugh is here to tell us about his testimony in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Brett Kavanaugh, can you tell us about your testimony? Conspiracy. Hit job. Clinton. Powerful, emotional testimony. Thank you, Mr. Kavanaugh. On with the podcast. And now, domestic Trump troubles. Okay, I'm not kidding. I went to report uh, on last week's Trump unhinged press conference and to gather my info. And what came up on my feed but Trump attacks female journalists and spreads Kavanaugh conspiracies in wild press conference. And that was from around one o'clock today. So I guess I need to cover that first. The Daily Beast reports Trump's morning press conference went off the rails with him berating multiple female reporters, claiming he has dirt on an unnamed Democratic senator and ranting about the media. He was there to announce his new trilateral trade deal, boasting the agreement will turn, quote, North America into a manufacturing powerhouse, unquote. When opening up for questions, he called on a female reporter, Cecilia Vega, and as she was standing up to ask, he said, quote, she's shocked that I picked her. She's like in a state of shock, unquote. She replied, I'm not thinking, uh, Mr. President, or something like that. And Trump, seemingly misunderstanding her, said, That's okay. I know you're not thinking. You never do. Unquote. Another reporter, Caitlin Collins, said, quote, Mr. President, now that you have answered several questions on trade, I would like to turn to Mr. Kavanaugh. Unquote. She was quickly interrupted by Trump, who said, Don't do that. Don't you have a question on trade? Collins tried again after Trump moved on to other reporters, and she asked, quote, Mr. President, just to wrap up, do you promise to release the FBI report, unquote? And Trump interrupted her to say, quote, you know what? You've had enough. You've had enough, unquote. And now to talk about last week's press conference. Esquire magazine reports, The craziest moments from Trump's crazy press conference. Highlights from a wild hour and a half of boasts, contradictions, and -and out-and-out nonsense. Featuring Trump saying, quote, If I wasn't elected, you would have had a war. You know how close Obama was to pressing that trigger? With me, no one is talking about war, unquote. And then he went on to talk about how the U.N. was laughing with him, not at him, but we've covered this story. He then described letters from Kim Jong-un as, quote, pieces of art. He likes me and I like him, unquote. 
He also said, Judge Kavanaugh is the real victim, just like he himself, Trump, has been. Trump said he's been accused by four or five women, actually 22. But who's counting? Who got paid a lot of money to make up stories about him? Who made a lot of money? He went on to say that Christine Blasey Ford should have reported the assault, quote, if it were as bad as she claims, unquote, and called the claims against Kavanaugh a con job. And the Democrats would even vote against George Washington if he were the nominee. And then later in his press conference, he called a, he was calling on a Kurdish reporter and he called him Mr. Kurd. Wow, what a couple of press conferences. Such a shame he doesn't do more of them. CBS News reports, Christine Blasey Ford concludes testimony, quote, a hundred percent, unquote, sure Kavanaugh assaulted her. Christine Blasey Ford, in testimony that left the hearing room silent for much of four hours, told the Senate Judiciary Committee that she is a hundred percent certain Brett Kavanaugh assaulted her when they were in high school. She started by saying she was terrified, but felt it was her duty as a citizen to share what she knows. Ford offered measured testimony that was at times emotional. Her voice cracked as she detailed the allegations and how the assault affected her afterwards. She laid out the alleged assault when she was 15 and Kavanaugh was 17. She described how she remembers Kavanaugh or Mark Judge pushing her into a bedroom, then Brett Kavanaugh pinning her to a bed, attempting to remove her clothing, grinding into her and covering her mouth. She was afraid that, uh, that he might accidentally kill her because she was having trouble breathing when her mouth was covered to avoid anyone hearing her scream, by the way, and because he was so drunk. She said her strongest memory was, quote, the uproarious laughter between the two, meaning Kavanaugh and Mark Judge, and they're having fun at my expense, unquote. The LA Times spoke with experts in the field of uh, trauma and sexual violence, one of whom was Sherry Harley, a clinical psychologist who has studied violence for more than 20 years and is a research professor of psychology. She said that Dr. Ford gave, quote, one of the most credible accounts I have ever heard from a victim, unquote. She went on to say, quote, I have seen a few commentators express surprise that she could remember details such as having his hand held over her mouth, but not remember the date or the time. That is truly ridiculous. Victims are in survival mode during these events. Dates and times are irrelevant constructs when you are fighting for your life. These factors are also the reason no one else at the party would remember it in any detail. It was just a normal time to them. No norepinephrine, no cortisol, no danger, unquote. Okay, 
I, Janine, would now like to add my two cents here as a therapist who has sat for over 20 years with clients who have had trauma and as someone who has extensive training in trauma. And let me tell you, the testimony I saw was very consistent with other people I have sat with. I have heard people's stories of trauma of various kinds, and sometimes I am the first and only person they have ever told. You hear the truth in the stories of their lives following the trauma. The same things we heard from Dr. Ford. Having issues with anxiety, struggles in school, hyper-awareness about safety. And with Dr. Ford, she needed to have two front doors in her house, which, by the way, came up in her couples therapy in 2012 when she had disclosed this episode. Uh, There's also been a focus in her professional life on trauma and psychology. This is not just a he said, she said. We have a lot of information that corroborates her story. What I just laid out, and perhaps most damning of all, was what Rachel Maddow laid out last week. Dr. Ford was first getting nervous when she learned that Kavanaugh was on the short list of potential nominees. She wrote her letter of concern before he was named as the nominee. Mm-hmm. So how does this make sense with the ridiculous assertion that this was a planned attack by Democrats? Also, are we to believe that these women and all other women, Kavanaugh and the likes of Trump assert are politically motivated, are just these incredible martyrs for the Democratic Party? You'd have to believe the argument that these women would give up their privacy, their safety, Dr. Ford has had death threats and had to move out of her house. Their family's security and privacy, all for the Democratic Party. I'm guessing this kind of martyr has to be very rare indeed. And I guess in Dr. Ford's case, she is the kind of devoted martyr who happens to have a credible allegation of sexual assault that just conveniently lines up in a remarkable way with crossing paths with Brett Kavanaugh. That is the absurd sham. Show me the facts that support this allegation. Show me how this is revenge against the Clintons. Show me when and where and how Democrats either concocted this story with Dr. Ford or how they convinced her to please, please, please turn her private pain and trauma to a moment for political gain, to become a martyr for the Democratic cause. We have the best martyrs. I want to hear this. They're so busy yelling that there's no evidence of Dr. Ford's case. Where is the evidence of this conspiracy theory? I haven't seen one. This is the real scam. That these Republican men didn't have the balls to confront her with these wild theories of how she must have been mixed up or a martyr or a pawn for the Democrats. They sat there quietly while the female prosecutor asked her questions. And then after Dr. Ford was no longer there, then they spewed their angry, venomous theories. At least they had the balls to confront Anita Hill directly with their skepticism and theories of her ulterior motives. Hard to believe, 
But this has just been about as awful in a different way than what we saw when Anita Hill testified. Whew! I had a lot to say there. Okay. How to summarize the judge's own testimony before the Judiciary Committee? Well, the first 20 minutes or so was Kavanaugh laying out his case of how he is to be believed, having throughout his life been copious in detailing his life events on a calendar-slash-diary a practice he picked up from his father and that he himself continues to this day. Notably absent from the calendars he produced from the summer of 82, however, according to Kavanaugh, was any record of an event or party where the alleged rape took, could have taken place. He made much about how parties would have been only on weekends because his friends worked during the week. He made mention of his own work, a lawn-cutting business. And Lord knows, lawns only get cut in the Maryland suburbs on Monday through Friday. <clears throat> but there is an event on a Thursday, July 1st, that curiously mentions at least two of at least three other people named by Dr. Blasey Ford at the event where, she was, where the alleged attempted rape occurred. Mark Judge and P.J. Smith. And unless she is clairvoyant, how could she have picked <clears throat> those names from Kavanaugh's calendar? Now, in addition to defending his trustworthiness, he tearfully spoke of the damage he, he, as well as his family, has suffered since the allegations became known. And in fits of unbridled rage, he called out the spectacle of the allegations for what he thought they were, a cunning plot fueled by the vengeance of Senate Democrats to smear Kavanaugh and destroy him as payback for, among other things, his participation in Bill Clinton's impeachment. Then we go to the question and answer, where soon after the, quote, female assistant, quote, unquote, let out a question about that July 1st calendar entry, uh, she was uh, quickly um, yanked and not heard from again. Now, there was some very salient details we learned as a result of the question and answer, such as that ralphing only happens after too much spicy food and not because of alcohol overconsumption, that devil's triangle doesn't mean three-way sex with two guys and a girl, but is an innocent drinking game similar to quarters, and that boof does not refer to anal sex, but for passing gas. And plenty of other fun facts. <clears throat> now, fortunately for the white male senators, Kavanaugh himself set the tone for the rest of the hearing, which was that of rage and haughty, sanctimonious indignation. Uh, notable among those senators was Lindsey Graham, who was caught auditioning to replace Jeff Sessions as Attorney General in an over-the-top tirade. As one of the guests, I believe it was on AM Joy this weekend, said, quote, Dr. Ford became roadkill to Lindsey Graham's ambition, unquote. And then there was Orrin Hatch's threat to potentially wavering Republicans that if they don't vote to confirm Kavanaugh, they will be essentially participating in the dismantling of the third branch of government. Fortunately, though, Republicans weren't the only senators with memorable moments. Right, Janine? That's right. And now, a bit of moralizing and lecturing. 
The unfitness of Brett Kavanaugh was on full display as he spewed conspiracy theories and spoke belligerently to senators. I said weeks ago I thought Kavanaugh was a scumbag based on the failed three opportunities he had to be a compassionate, Christian human being to Fred Guttenberg, the dad who lost his 14-year-old daughter in Parkland. And after seeing him talk to Senators Whitehouse and Senator Klobuchar, I am reiterating my belief. When Senator Whitehouse asked Kavanaugh if Ralphing referred to throwing up due to alcohol, Kavanaugh unbelievably asked back, quote, I like beer. Do you like beer? What do you drink? Unquote. And then with Amy Klobuchar, when she asked him if there had ever been a case where he drank so much that he didn't remember what happened the night before or part of what happened, this scumbag, yes, scumbag, said, quote, you're asking about, you know, blackout. I don't know. Have you? She says, quote, Could you answer the question, Judge? I just, so you, that's not happened. Is that your answer? He answers, quote, yeah, and I'm curious if you have, unquote. Outside of any sexual allegation, it was these moments that showed his unfitness on full display. You are going through a job interview, Brett Kavanaugh. You are sitting in a professional capacity, and I'll grant you your emotionality during your opening remarks, even though they were full of conspiracy theories uh, that, that have no weight. But after that, I expect you to pull yourself together and act in a professional, judicious manner, not defensive and belligerent, to not even realize You need to try to appear professional and judicious is what is so disturbing. Watch his demeanor. You can see how uncomfortable he is when he's confronted. It shows an incredible sense of entitlement and it scares the crap out of me to think of this man sitting in judgment of, God forbid, a Democrat or a woman or someone who's got an allegation against an employer. Uh... Uh, to say nothing about the provable lies that he told in his testimony. One of the most notable eruptions for me was when Chairman Chuck Grassley admonished everyone in the room after Senator Dick Durbin suggested to Kavanaugh that he could turn to presidential lawyer Don McGahn then and there to request an FBI investigation into the allegations in order to clear his name. Grassley said, quote, this committee is, is running the hearing, not the White House, not Don McGahn, not even you as a nominee, end quote. Well, Senator Grassley might have thought his committee was the conductor of the investigation, but after endless, endless calls by Democrats for an FBI investigation of the facts, plus a couple of heroic women who cornered him in an elevator, Senator Jeff Flake in consultation with Democratic Senator Chris Coons, laid down an FBI investigation as a prerequisite to his yes vote. And that's where we are today. And ironically, the, the Republicans who called out Democrats for their, quote, delaying tactics, unquote, 
are themselves now responsible for at least a week lost by not recommending, in fact demanding, the White House call for an FBI investigation right away when Ford's allegations became known. Mm. In addition to Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's allegations against uh, Brett Kavanaugh, a couple other victims have come forward with allegations of their own. Now, one of them we mentioned last week, who was a classmate of Kavanaugh's at Yale when they were freshmen, Deborah Ramirez. Um, she recalled how at a dorm party, Kavanaugh exposed himself to her and in, in fact shoved his junk in her face, which she could not avoid touching in trying to push him away from her, which was totally gross. Uh, now, even Brett's freshman roommate alleged that he was an aggressive and belligerent and frequent drunk. But at the hearing, Kavanaugh dismissed that roommate um, as uh, being untrustworthy. Um, he dismissed him by essentially assassinating his character, something that can't be done to Mr. Kavanaugh, but which he has no problem in doing uh, to others. So we're to believe Brett, but not the roommate. But that's okay. Um, because we don't have to just take Brett Kavanaugh's word for it. Shortly after Ramirez's story was dropped, we heard from no less than 60 or so of Kavanaugh's contemporaries from Yale defending his character. Today, though, we learned that Kavanaugh himself was lining up this defense prior to Ramirez's story being published by the New York Times, which directly contradicts his own testimony before the Judiciary Committee, saying that he only learned of that allegation after the story's release in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. ah. Now, in addition to Ramirez, we finally learned on Wednesday, the day before the hearing, that another uh, high school contemporary, although not a, actually a high school student of Kavanaugh's, Julie Swetnick, was um, present at and witness to the train raping that was uh, transpiring at the high school parties of the well-to-do, and that she herself was ultimately a victim. Now, she did not affirmatively state that either Kavanaugh or his friend, uh, Matt Judge, Matt Judge, Mark Judge, Mark. Mark Judge, were among the rapists, her rapists, but she did put them at the scene. So doesn't it stand to reason that Kavanaugh would want these allegations investigated to prove his innocence and protect his good name? No, why bother with that when those events were clearly not listed on his calendar? Now, news is so late-breaking on this story that as of the weekend, Julie Swetnick was out of scope of the FBI's investigation. And because of that, today, um, Monday, as promised by her lawyer, Michael Avenatti, Swetnick sat down for an interview with NBC and told her story on camera for the nation to hear. Now, it turns out that she did report her rape to the Montgomery County Police right away, though the court, the county has said it might be a month before such records can be located and produced. She also gave the names of four individuals who she said could corroborate her story. Actually, however, the first to be contacted said he has no recollection of her or the events, and another she named turns out to be deceased. But I'm sure that we have not heard the last of her story. Indeed. Which I guess also brings up the FBI investigation. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And so, how, you know, apparently as of now... As of now, it is <clears throat> open. You right. Know, first, the, it was going to be a sham... They're going to talk to four witnesses. Four flipping witnesses. And one and, and two of them were not 
Brett Kavanaugh or uh, Dr. Blasey Ford. Right. Right. They weren't even going to talk to right. the participants in the allegations. Right. But fortunately, um, in spite of uh, his tweets to the contrary, the president has now officially given word to the FBI that they are not to restrict themselves in leaving any stones unturned hmm. to get to the truth. In a week. As long as they can do it in a week. Right. And now for your tweet of the week. Our tweet of the week is from op-ed columnist for the New York Times, Charles Blow, who writes, Isn't it curious how white men felt oh so comfortable exploding in anger at the Kavanaugh hearings? The label of angry white men won't haunt them. Or emotionally hysterical women. Ford controlled hers. Barack spent eight years managing his. Access to one's emotions at work is a privilege. Thank you, Mr. Blow. And now, Trump troubles around the globe. I will start our next story off by saying, if anyone ever ever says to me that it is unpatriotic to take a knee during the national anthem, I will remind them of this story and the complete unpatriotic acts of our president. The Boston Globe reports, Trump on Kim Jong-un, we fell in love. No listeners, this is not a joke. I only wish it were. Trump told a cheering crowd at a campaign rally in West Virginia that there was once tough talk uh, back and forth between him and North Korea leader Kim Jong-un. And then we fell in love. Trump said at the rally, he wrote, uh, quote, he wrote me beautiful letters and they're great letters. We fell in love. He joked about the criticism that he would get from the news media for making a comment some would consider, quote, unpresidential, unquote, and for being so positive about the North Korean leader. I'll take a moment to remind our listeners of some of the reasons that Kim Jong-un is the leader of one of the world's most cruel and repressive countries. A 2014 UN Commission of Inquiry found that the government committed gross, systematic, and widespread human rights abuses, including extermination, murder, enslavement, torture, imprisonment, rape, forced abortions, and other sexual violence. Wow. One prisoner's newborn baby was killed and fed to guard dogs. Kim Jong-un's half-brother and uncle were killed for supporting a China coup plot. And then there is American citizen Otto Warmbier. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. Maybe it's Warmbier. Anyway, he was a college student who... um, actually, I believe it was a UVA student, right. who was arrested in North Korea in January of 16 for attempted theft. He was imprisoned and uh, sentenced to hard labor. 
He was sent home brain damaged and in a coma and later died. It is speculated he was repeatedly beaten and tortured. It is reported by his parents that his arms and legs were, quote, totally deformed and it, quote, looked like someone had taken a pair of pliers and rearranged his bottom teeth. This was the condition that he was sent home. Wow. Do these parents really now need to hear the President of the United States talking about being in love with this violent, vile dictator? The man who finds it unpatriotic to kneel during the national anthem doesn't respect his own citizens enough to shut his mouth and mute his unbridled love for a man the rest of the world knows is horrible. Newsweek reports... Migrant children are being moved at midnight to Texas tent city so they won't flee, say shelter workers. Migrant children are being moved to a tent city in Texas during the night in an effort to stop them fleeing. The New York Times reported that hundreds of migrant children who are not in foster homes or shelters are moved where they are held in tents while they are being processed. As we covered last week, the number of migrant children has increased to 13,000. A shelter worker said that two dozen children recently transferred to Tornillo were given just a few hours notice because if they were given any longer, they may have panicked and fled. There are concerns that the Tornillo site is unregulated and offers no schooling like there is in other shelters. I, I, I don't want children in tents. I don't want children in tents. This has got to stop. We don't know what's going on in these tents. Weren't you saying, weren't you telling me that some of the caregivers were in tears over yes. the release of these kids to these... Yeah, in tears. Because they don't know, they're not regulated. Which means, well, who knows what's going on? Who knows what kind of care they're getting? And all of this is because not that there's been a great increase in, in these migrant children, but the placement, as we talked about last week, because people are so terrified of being deported, family members are not coming forward to, to provide shelter for these children. And that's why they're ending up in these, in, in these um, uh, detention centers and now tents. It's got to stop. Okay. And now for your action of the week. Okay, people, the action of the week is we are asking everybody to either text or instant message resist bot. We've talked about this on an earlier episode. You just text 50409 and then it will prompt you to type in resist. And then you can contact your Congress people. Um, it's really important that we contact our senators. And even if your senator is already voting no, it's important for them to hear from us. If you are unhappy about this Kavanaugh nomination, um, it would be great to reach out and contact them. And I think I said you can also do it on Facebook Messenger as well. Okay, try it and um, see how it goes.
And now, what the hell is happening in the Russia investigation anyway? This next story is about a case that is soon to be appearing before the Supreme Court that is not directly related to the Russia investigation, but it could very well influence it. Uh, as reported by The Atlantic, Gamble versus the U.S. will be considered in context of whether or not to preserve the dual sovereignty doctrine which currently enables defendants to be charged for the same crime by both state and federal governments. At least one senator, Orrin Hatch, is very invested in having it overturned, having written a 44-page amicus brief explaining that the increasing federalization of what were originally state-prosecuted crimes makes even more possible the very thing the clause was intended to prevent. Now, what the hell does that mean? Well, let's use a practical example. Robert Mueller has farmed out certain crimes charged against Paul Manafort, for example, to the state of Virginia, for which he's been convicted. Those convictions overlap with those recently handed down by the federal court system in D.C. So, even if Trump pardoned Manafort for the federal convictions, he can still expect to serve time for the state crimes of which he was also convicted. If, however, the dual sovereignty doctrine, as it's called, were tossed, a Trump pardon for the federal crimes would apply to the state charges of the same crimes. Now, in fairness to Orrin Hatch, he's been working on this issue for a long time. However, the timing of its ascendance to the Supreme Court cannot be divorced from its application to the Mueller investigation. Oh. Of course, it's anyone's guess as to whether the 150-year-old exception to the Fifth Amendment's Double Jeopardy Clause will be overturned by the current Supreme Court, being so perfectly split between four conservative-leaning justices and four liberal-leaning justices, right? Oh, yeah. There's that other matter of the Kavanaugh hearing. Oh, God help us. And now, for your inspirational quote <laughs> of the week. The quote of the week this week is a song. It's a song called Nina Cried Power by the singer Hosier. <laughs> My husband's nodding that I got that right. I'd like to thank my daughter, Madeline, for uh, introducing us to this great song. And here it is. It's not the song it is to sing. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week and tell all your left-leaning, but not very active friends about us. This has been a Common Production.